This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Don Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityandcaptivity.fun. This is Creativity and Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today we arrive at the intersection of food, art, and high adventure. My guest is not your average home-on-the-range cook. He is a globetrotting gastronaut, a whimsical chef armed with an arsenal of culinary jiggery-pokery. Coming up is Food Network star and the author of the cookbooks, Glutton for Pleasure and Flavor Bomb, Bob Bloomer. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, or captive to a mystery. Of creativity. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. Hello, Bob. Hey, how are you doing, Pat? You may not know that I'm aware of you from many years ago, and I stumbled into Off the Eaten Path, a cookbook I love, and one of your early ones, I think. That was my third cookbook, but it, it came out 20 years ago. I'm a super fan of the peppered salmon recipe. It's like <laughs> salmon cheesecake. Basically four ingredients, but yeah, it really gets you there. Now there's a fifth ingredient, that's a little drop of oil. I always find that you don't count that kind of, right? A little <laughs> peanut oil or... For people who don't know, it's ground pepper, it's maple syrup and soy sauce, and then salmon fillets. And then I guess if you count the Ziploc baggie for marinating, that's your, all you need. But basically you create a marinade with soy sauce and salmon and you let it sit in a Ziploc bag overnight and the soy sauce permeates the the salmon and the maple syrup chases after it. It's really sort of marinated through and through. Then you pat it down on some peppercorns to get that nice heat, which is a great counterpoint to the sweet of the maple syrup and uh, grill it off. And it is a, it is a magical recipe. You served it on a corn mash sort of thing? The cream corn I use that I served that with is is so simple. It's really just corn on the cob. You take a knife and you score down the the lines of the, the corn kernels and then you take the back of a knife and you should do this outside and inside a big pasta pot. But you take the back of a table knife and uh, just force out the milk and the meat from the corn kernels. As it turns out, the, the actual casing of the kernel is a little bit bitter, but when you force out the milk and the meat, it turns out to be very, very sweet. And you don't need to add anything at all, but you're always welcome to add a little pat of butter to it. You just heat it up over a just a moderate heat because you don't want it to thicken and burn off. And then you've got the most amazing cream corn. And yes, you could add some salt and pepper. So there's a couple more ingredients if you're really counting. But it is absolutely worth doing. I can tell you, you know, milking the corn, as it were. So to speak. Yeah, <laughs> with the, gotta look for the little teeny udders. <laughs> it is really a phenomenal recipe. And, and it's one of so many that you have that are playful and yet elegant. How do you approach a visit to the farmer's market? That's a really good question. My local farmer's market is on Sunday morning. And it's like my church. Or another way to look at it is it's my Christmas morning. I'm so excited 
to go. And my wife, who works a more conventional job, always likes to sleep in on Sunday. And I'm like chomping at the bit to be the first person in line at the market. But I like to go with an open mind and see what is in season. I have the good fortune of living in California. So there's something fresh and new pretty well every couple of weeks. So in the spring, you get the green garlic, you get the garlic scapes, you get the fava beans, the peat tendrils, things like that. In the fall, you get the squashes. I guess there are some things I buy all the time, but then I, I like to keep an open mind and buy whatever is kind of fresh and exciting and try and build some meals around it. I was just in Seattle with one of my sons and we to Pike Place Market where there, there's lots of food. But across the way, there was Frank's Produce and I was introduced to black garlic. I had never seen that before. And it was not as pungent as regular garlic. Is that an ingredient that you know anything about? I got to be honest with you. I have seen it, tasted it, but I am no expert in it. To be 100% honest, I don't even really remember if it's fermented or if it's grown that way. I, I couldn't tell, but it was like already soft and, you know, almost like an cr artist crayon or something. Yeah, I have a feeling that it's somehow fermented. That may be the trick. Today, actually, I was reading your cookbook, Flavor Bomb, and I found um, another three-ingredient recipe which was cauliflower, salt, and olive oil. And you're a big champion of the caramelized cauliflower. I'm actually a big champion of caramelization. So caramelization occurs when you take any kind of natural sugar, and it could be in anything from asparagus to cauliflower. There's even natural sugars in, in meats, and that's how you get that beautiful crust on it. And if you using cauliflower as an example, if you were to just steam cauliflower, those natural sugars would lie dormant but by heating them at a high temperature in your oven or even on a barbecue, it's say 425 degrees over the course of an hour, those natural sugars caramelize. So they turn brown, just like sugar would if you put it into a pan and it becomes caramel and it creates a ton of natural sweetness. So you, you know, kids who wouldn't come near a piece of raw or steamed cauliflower will beg you to make them what I call cauliflower popcorn because I break the cauliflower florets into sort of popcorn sizes. And, uh, and so it's a great little healthy snack for kids. I think of you now as the Orville Redenbacher of cauliflower. <laughs> I would, I, uh, that's a crown I would happily wear. <laughs> in your playful way, you were serving it in one of your books out of a popcorn container because you always have a way of displaying something a few years back when I was throwing a special dinner party for a bunch of colleagues that didn't know each other, we did a, a thing we called the Night of the Round Tables. And the Night of the Round Tables was eight or 10 people at a table at seven tables, and we wanted the food to all be playful. And I went to your recipe of pound cakes cut like fries served out of a McDonald's fry container. Mm -hmm. And then you had a side of raspberry sauce of, in the ketchup container. So what we did with each recipe was we renamed it in a menu where it was more of a puzzle they had to figure out. And so they didn't know what they were ordering in each course. And so what got them all talking was, what is this? Are you getting that? And they had to order 16 items in groups of four so that there was a course of four things. But what they didn't realize is we also had named the fork and the spoon and the knife. So sometimes they would get a fork and a toothpick and an olive and a glass of wine because they had ordered Right. Jesus juice, which was the wine, or non-alcoholic martini, and that was just an olive on a toothpick. <laughs> what they didn't know is with the next course, we took away 
everything. So therefore, if they were clever and thought they were going to get their silverware first, that all went away when the next course came and they were faced with having to barter with other people at the table for something. Wow, sounds like crazy evening. You've always got a really whimsical and great presentation. Uh, and I know that you carry that into even how you promoted your work. So can you talk a little bit about turning the Airstream trailer into a custom uh, touring device and what you did there to make a, a kitchen? Sure. Well, when that book, Off the Eaten Path, came out, I decided that I would take matters into my own hands and go off the Eaten Path to promote it. And at the time, I didn't have a television show yet, so I decided that I was going to get some crazy kind of vehicle and travel all around the country. And so I raised a quarter of a million dollars from sponsors by promising to wear a chef's jacket with their logos as patches, like a NASCAR racing driver, which you see that a lot now, but Back in those days, no chef was doing that. So I bought the Airstream, the shell of the Airstream, tricked it out with $50,000 kitchen on the inside, which was also about 10 years before the whole food truck craze began. Of course, there's an upside and a downside to being ahead of the market. (laughs) And I experienced both of them. And then the old Airstreams always looked like vintage toasters to me. So I did what was logical to me. And I put two eight-foot-long three-dimensional slices of toast on top of the Airstream. We drove it around the country and spent three months and I think we drove 17,000 miles uh, and hit 30 cities. It was a very rock and roll style tour. I did bookstore signings and dinner parties and TV appearances and cra- crazy shit like that. Call it guac and roll, I guess, with what you do. Yeah. Right? I just want to circle back to the fries for a second. If anybody's thinking of doing it, what I do is I start with a loaf of pound cake that I buy at the store, and then I slice it into fry-like pieces, put it on a sheet pan, and then bake it at a low temperature, say 325 degrees, until they start to brown, and then I roll them over a couple times. And then you essentially get like twice-baked pound cake, which is essentially like biscotti, they're nice and crispy and crunchy and brown like a french fry. And then I serve them in a McDonald's french fry container with raspberry puree, which I serve out of a ketchup bottle or a, a squeeze bottle, as one does. As one does. <laughs> we share a friend. My friend Jeff, who's from Seattle, is in the music business. And I just happened to see him. And he said to me, ask Bob to tell you about the TV dinner story. And I don't know what that means, but hopefully you do. Do you have a, a TV dinner story that is infamous? Um, I do have one, infamous for an odd, non-connected reason, but, you know, I call myself the surreal gourmet because I take things like pound cake and turn them into french fries. Uh, And surrealism, for your audience members who may not be familiar with the term, is it's natural objects in unnatural juxtapositions. So Salvador Dali with his melting clocks and Rene Magritte with his floating businessmen in the sky... Uh, wearing bowler hats. They're two of my favorite surrealists. So I was always being playful. And I was on the East Coast, but I was coming home to host a dinner party the night that my flight arrived. And I decided to play a bit of a prank on my friends. When they got to my house, I told them that my flight had been late and that the only way I could save the dinner party was to beg a half dozen dinners from the flight attendants, sort of leftover dinners. But what I had done is I had gotten the dishes, the little you know containers and compartments and whatnot, and uh, made my own food that looked like airplane food, but I'd put it in those containers. And then I served it to everybody. And 
or nobody really commented because they, you know, after the fact, they said, well, it did taste a little better than I remember, but they were so just in the moment and so convinced that I had done what I said I did that they didn't say anything. So I got a little pissed off at them. It is funny when you have sort of a too perfect prank that it kind of bites you in the back, right? Yeah. And so Jeff, Jeff was, I believe, at that dinner, which is why he ah, didn't remember it. Okay. Well, I was at a dinner because I did live in L.A. one time, and because Jeff had introduced me to your work, you at one time did an April Fool's sort of pop-up restaurant takeover. I don't know if you recall it, but I remember some of the specific... At Vita, the restaurant Vita with the chef Fred Eric. Okay. So it was great. We arrived, we paid to have the dinner, and we were there, and the first thing is all the waiters and waitresses came out, and they, there was a champagne bottle that they popped the cork and in the fluted glasses they poured this cold uh, vichyssoise soup out of it i think into the <laughs> champagne flutes which was a great start to an april fool's dinner but also i remember you had some kind of a popcorn shrimp salad where all of the waiters came running out at once with jiffy pop popcorn containers where they had already been exploded like the foil was at full bloom and they went to set it on the plate and when they lifted the whole thing up it revealed the salad with the popcorn shrimp i don't remember all the details of the of the night but it was sure a fun way to celebrate the night uh do you remember what other things may have been served that night i remember this one other course where we had something that was flambéed and then like we lit it on fire and then someone came out and got all upset that it was on fire and they immediately tried to put the fire out and then when the fire was out then and everything seemed like it was totally burned, then it revealed something below it that right. was actually not burned. But that's kind of that's kind of all I remember. That was a long, I was in the last century. Well, that, that just shows how old I am. But but I've been paying attention. <laughs> but you're you're sort of noted for your art of the dinner party. Can you kind of give me just an overview of how you approach throwing a dinner party? Sure. I mean, there's so many different kinds of dinner parties. And I think in Los Angeles, if anything, between us girls, the reason I like to throw dinner parties is so that people will come here so that I can stay in the comfort of my own home and, and make food that's good enough that they will look forward to coming here as opposed to complaining that they have to drive across town. You know, I'm a very informal person and I think I'm happily to this day serving off mismatched plates with mismatched silverware, some of which has airline insignias on it. I think the number one rule for me and the number one thing i tell people is don't overreach like don't try and make a million things make a great appetizer a great entree maybe a side salad and mostly i let someone else bring dessert and that way i can focus on like three different things and make sure that each one of them is as delicious as i can possibly make them sometimes i'll use some of my visual presentations that you've talked about but for the most part, I don't do that at home, unless it's a special event or a special occasion. For the most part, I focus on the flavors. My transition to this last book I wrote called Flavor Bomb, which is my seventh book, was really one in which I left behind all of the presentation tricks and the visual tricks and just focused on the flavors. And in fact, the whole first half of Flavor Bomb is an instructional guide and like it's full of tricks and, and tips and hacks and, and the techniques that I've learned from eating my way around the globe for the last 25 years and how to make anything taste better, regardless of if it's 
your go-to Tuesday night meal or something from the other, second half of the book, which are my recipes. And so when my friends come over and I throw dinner parties, I really just focus on making everything really, really tasty. Well, you also, though, have a reputation for the playlist of what to cook, what to clean, what to dine to, like a loving mixtape to the yeah. moment. But that comes, you have a music background, right? I do. I know Jeff from the days when I managed an artist, a very eclectic Canadian singer-songwriter by the name of Jane Sibbery, who your audience might know. And if they don't, they might recognize a song of hers called Calling All Angels that she wrote and produced and had Katie Lang sing on with her. It was in the soundtrack to the Vim Benders film, Until the End of the World. In my early books, I used to always include an album to cook by. In the very early days, it was literally an album to cook by. And the concept was that if you could get out of the kitchen before the album was finished, you had succeeded in your mission and you were spending just the right amount of time making dinner. Anything over the length of, a, of an album was, in my mind, too long to spend. And, you know, I would thematically connect the albums to cook by to the meals that you were cooking. But in my last book, I actually created some Spotify playlists for dinner parties and breakfasts and after dinner playlists and even doing the dishes playlists. And uh, so I, you know, tried to adapt to the times. I think that's great. And this your Spotify playlist is under your name? Bob Bloomer, yes. Bob Bloomer, which is B L U. M-E-R. That's correct. Okay, I want to be sure everyone knows because there isn't a better free thing than to have a curated listening library to the to the activities in the kitchen. And so I think I have a half dozen different playlists on that. My favorite collection, it's my collection of my favorite covers, not your, you know, run-of-the-mill covers, but a lot of just really eclectic, out-of-the-box. You're three-quarters of the way through the song before you recognize the song that's being covered. You mentioned a word in Flavor Bomb in those early pages called stodging. Is that a French word for auditing in a kitchen or something like that? It is. It's spelt stage. Here's how it works. When you stage, you find a restaurant tour. Like if you have a favorite restaurant, maybe even a local go-to place. And if you are interested in learning about cooking, you can talk to if you know the owner or the front of the house person or even one of the servers and say, you know, wondering if I can get to the chef and see if I could volunteer my time on a weekend or for a few weeknights or whatever you're available. And I'm happy to do anything that they want me to do. So that usually entails peeling potatoes, all of the really simplest of simple jobs that anybody can do. And then while you're there, you have the opportunity to observe what's happening in a professional kitchen. And it's a great way to learn tricks because you're seeing things all the time that you wouldn't have thought of doing. And then inevitably, if you show enough interest, the chefs will start to give you tastes of things they're making. If they're making a vinaigrette, they'll say, hey, taste this. What do you think of it? And you'll say, and they'll go, here, I'm just going to put a little, I need to put a little more lemon juice in this. Now taste it now. You go, oh, I just learned that, it, you know, you can take it to the edge of acidity and it actually makes it a way more interesting dressing. So I, something I highly recommend to anybody who even just has a passing interest in cooking. And certainly for anybody who thinks they want to open a restaurant, go stage in one for a while and see if you really like it or not. Someone who wants to go to chef school, for example. But you didn't go to formal cooking school of any kind. No, no, I'm totally self-taught. I mean, I wrote a cookbook as a pet project, my very first cookbook, Surreal Gourmet, and then tricked Chronicle Books in San Francisco into releasing it 
And it came out and I was immediately reviewed by the New York Times book review section. And I was invited onto the Today Show. And after all that, I had to teach myself how to cook because it was really just my bachelor repertoire of mediocre recipes <laughs> that was supplemented by some fun illustrations I had done and music to cook by. I, my, that book was the first book ever to have music to cook by. For the listener, let me also tell them, you are an artist and your artwork, which is very playful puns on food and visual hybrids of avocado that looks like a lute or something, cross sections of food and how they look, which also led to some sculptures of custom cocktail glass in your books. And so you're as much an artist as you are a musician and a chef. That's a little bit of also where your surrealism comes in, if I'm correct. Sure. And thank you for that. It's nice to be recognized for that. Uh, truthfully, I approach cooking as if it's a, a, a visual art or a variation on a theme of the visual art, because anybody who uh, paints or has painted or mixes paints from time to time knows that if you take uh, some yellow and some blue, they can close their eyes and imagine that if they mix those two colors together, they're going to get green. I mean, most kids can do that too. I am able in my mind to imagine a set of ingredients and think to myself, well, if I mix this ingredient with that ingredient, I can visualize or taste how it's gonna taste. So what I'm trying to say is mixing ingredients for me is like mixing paints. And so those, both of those things are in my wheelhouse, but to me, they're variations on a theme of artistic materials, be they paints or food. And you take the same approach to plating, I imagine, in terms of artistically. Of course, a plate is like a canvas, right? Nothing makes me crazier than busy plates, like, you know, with designs on them and things like that. That's like somebody handing you a painting and then asking you to paint on top of the painting. So I'm a big fan of just solid color plates, you know, whatever color they are, but just solid color. And as big as possible, too. The bigger the canvas, the more fun it is. Right. That's cool. You know, it's funny. I've been to places where they have a huge plate and a very small, nice portion, and then drizzling and dusting. It's a plate that's entirely too big for- Sure, it's also fun, even when you're not paying at all, say when you're at home, it's, it, it is fun to dress a plate up. I mean, listen, not everybody has the luxury of spending the time I spend on food, and I certainly can't expect people with kids and busy lives to spend time on every dish making it look beautiful. But from time to time, when you want to dress things up for a dinner party or- you just want to go that one extra step to make it extra special. It is fun to play around with your plating. What what kind of foods hold a like great sense memory for you? Like when you smell them that take you back to a moment. Are there some specific foods that do that? I was a really fussy eater when I was a kid and my mother used to make me shake and bake chicken all the time while she was making adventurous food for her friends and for everyone else. And I grew up thinking my mother was not a good cook, but then I found out after that it was just, I was such a fussy eater. I don't know that I have early childhood memories of food, maybe the smell of baking chocolate chip cookies. I developed my palate after I went to college and you know, even, I don't think I ate a piece of fish until I was 30 years old. We just didn't really have a lot of fish in the house. That's the good thing about getting older is there's a lot of time between 30 and now, and I've tasted an awful lot of foods that I never expected to taste in my life, like balut, the partially formed duck embryo that's popular in the Philippines, or sauteed killer bee larva that I tasted in Japan. 
But that does bring up another area, which is you had glutton for punishment on the Food Network. And you also, that sort of stemmed into your Guinness Book of World Records chasing for a number of different challenges. So what was the first world record that you went after? Well, I did this for my show, Glutton for Punishment. And on that show, I had five days to learn a particularly daunting, often very physically challenging food-related skill. And then on the fifth day, I'd be thrown to the wolves and have to compete in a professional competition. So for example, I'd have five days to learn how to shuck oysters. And on the fifth day, I would enter a professional oyster shucking competition. In year three of the show, someone had the great idea that I should try and break a food-related Guinness World Record. And some of these records are insane, right? The amount of food that you need to make to be the world's largest whatever Caesar salad. This The world's largest Caesar salad was a record set in Mexico and they had like, I don't know, miles of plexiglass troughs that they were mixing the salad in. So we needed something that was relatively containable, yet at the same time challenging enough so that the odds were against me because that's how the show worked. And so we decided that I would attempt to break the Guinness World Record for the most pancakes made in an hour. So that involved dropping them on a griddle, letting it cook, flipping it, letting the second side cook, and then taking it off the griddle. And you now have eight to your name. Is that right? Eight Guinness Book of World Records? That's correct. Okay. So it's funny. That held a very special place as a kid. This is before the internet and a cell phone. You just poured over the Guinness Book of World Records, figuring out how am I going to get in there? And you would stop on pages where, like I remember the world's heaviest twins on mini bikes. And I would look at that and I would say, how did that come to be? It's one thing to be the heaviest guy and want to be on a mini bike, but you then have to convince your twin brother. You have to say, <laughs> Bob, I know, you know, you, you'd rather sit around here and watch TV, but we've, we've got to go gas up the mini bikes. You know, that, that picture just fascinated me. Were you tempted to grow your fingernails? Uh, the fingernails was not my one. It was the mustache. I was the guy who held his mustache out with his arms fully stretched. I saw, believe me, I stopped on the fingernail people because it was so creepy. At, let's say, a 10 or 11 years old, even if you started then with a mustache, you were going to be 90 before you could get it to that guy's. So I didn't really think that was a sustainable dream. Speaking of TV dinners, this is really for your amusement. I did make the Last Supper TV dinner. It was a TV dinner for 12 people. Oh, that's awesome. The catchphrase was loaves and fishes without the stoves and dishes. There's a market for that. Yeah. So we made a kind of a comedy parody commercial. That's I think it might be up on YouTube somewhere. Oh. But I cut the back out of a toaster oven so that I could keep pulling the dinner out. And then I set it down on a table with 12 bearded guys. And if you ordered by a certain time, you got the uh, Shroud of Turin tablecloth, right? So it had sort of the impression <laughs> of the Lord on the table. That's genius. It was certainly irreverent and reflected back on what I daydreamed about in church instead of other <laughs> things. I had parents that had a sense of humor. And I remember my mom showing me a recipe and I didn't know that it wasn't real. It had on it, add a cup of raw popcorn to the stuffing right before you put the uh, turkey in the oven. The last part said, when the popcorn blows the butt off the bird, you know it's good to go. And it wasn't a real thing, but I was like, oh my God, what are we doing here? I mean, it was fun to sort of grow up with family that had a whimsical look at, at food as well. Peas on the cob was one of my dreams that probably fits into the kind of art you do, but to get kids to eat their peas, it was like a Gregor Mendel idea, which was, get peas to grow in a cob shape. 
so that kids would eat more peas because everything on a cob is good. That's amazing. I'm just madly Googling, can you make popcorn in an oven? Oh. To see what would happen if you put the popcorn in the oven in the bird. I actually do know how you could do it. If you kept the cavity of the bird open, if your oil temperature was at 350 and you had popcorn and some oil, it would definitely pop. So if you had a very small metal container that you could insert into the cavity of the turkey <laughs> and put some popcorn kernels in it without any additional stuffing, which I know takes the fun out of it, then it would all pop and then fill the bird and probably cause the bird to explode. I'm intrigued at how seriously you're taking it. Dude, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to my kitchen to try this. <laughs> Good. I want to know. Email me the results. I will. I have two sons, and I consider myself to be a firehouse cook. Like, they would always have their friends over, and I was just like, oh, I got to fuel these guys and their, and all the other crazy friends that came over. So I was just always making burgers and hot dogs. But as we got into this pandemic pause, there was much more time, and there was just two of us at home. So we did a lot of other trying of cookbooks and getting into different things. And I'll tell you what, we learned an awful lot because we had the time to do it. That's great. That's one of the silver linings. Well, do you have um, great kitchen tips or hacks for the everyday person that are something that you would say, here's my top one or two things that people should know that they don't? For sure. And not because I'm trying to get anyone to buy Flavor Bomb, but the whole first half of Flavor Bomb is basically all that. It's all the tricks and everything I've learned from all my travels. And it's really about how to make your food taste better, not how to make my food taste better. In the whole cycle of promoting my book, no one said like, what is your best kitchen trick? It might sound obvious to some, but just setting your kitchen up in a way that when you walk into the kitchen, everything is sort of in a ready state of alert. So you've got your cutting board down in your sweet spot where you like to cut with a dish towel underneath it. It's always a little bit damp so that the cutting board doesn't skid around. You've got an old tomato can with your go-to utensils in that to one side of the cutting board. Maybe you've stuck a magnet on the wall in front of that cutting board with your go-to two or three knives. And by the way, I was just rereading Anthony Bourdain's first book, Kitchen Confidential, and he does the same rant that I do about the fact that knife sets are for brides and they're useless. It's just like a classic wedding gift. Never get a knife set. All you need is a chef's knife, a paring knife, and a bread knife, and maybe a utility knife, those four. Right, that big block, you use one or two of those knives and the rest of them never see the light of day. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so have your knives around and then make sure your area is well lit. Even if you have to put one of those sort of Home Depot style glued on lamps underneath your kitchen shelves so that it's focused on your cutting area. This is another thing I, I like to encourage people to do is look around your kitchen and do a little triage. Like look at all the things taking up the real estate on your countertop where you're doing your prep work. And think to yourself, you know, when was the last time I used this? Like, when was the last time I made bread in this bread maker that someone gave me? Or how much space do I really need to dedicate to the flour, sugar, and big containers? And clear those off. And then if you've got a couple of things you use all the time, like your blender, or in my case, my panini maker, which is my favorite go-to for making bread really super crusty. I put those up so that they're always out. So when your kitchen is in a ready state of alert, 
it means that you can be cooking the second you walk into your kitchen. So that's not exactly a hack, but it really is. It's the first thing I tell people when they're getting into cooking is in the 10 minutes some people can take to get all this cooking implements out from underneath their counters and wherever else they are in their drawers and stuff. I've finished dinner. I've done it. It's over. I'm eating. I think when you're in a state of flow like that, it also makes it more enjoyable. So you're not digging around and you can't even get the drawer open because that ladle is in there that just keeps banging. <laughs> you have a two minute stop to try to unearth something just to do some small thing. Here are a few other little things that I love to talk about in terms of hacks and flavor boosting. You buy a lemon for the juice, you get the zest for free. If you have a six or eight dollar zester, that microplane or something like that, you can get the zest off your lemons and your limes and your even your oranges. And that adds so much flavor to all sorts of things. You know, just grate a little zest over some fish that you just finished. I even grate some orange zest onto my granola. So a granola and, and yogurt and a put the zest of half an orange on that and it brightens it up and just adds like this pop of flavor. Another one of my favorite things is balsamic vinegar, but the good stuff, the fancy stuff, and it's a, it's a little bit more expensive, but you only use a few drops of it. You can put it on ice cream, you can put it on strawberries. I use it in my salads and I make a salad that's very acidic because I'm often making a simple salad to go along with my, say a pasta, which is rich. I'll use some olive oil, uh, maybe a half a teaspoon of fancy gooey balsamic vinegar, and then a half a lemon and one garlic clove that I'll smash and flatten and mince into nothingness. And that makes an amazing salad dressing that is just so bright and zingy and is a beautiful counterpoint to a rich pasta. There are so many tricks like that that I, I did outline in, my, in Flavor Bomb, but there's so many tricks that really don't cost very much at all. I mean, even the expensive balsamic is for a half a teaspoon is 25 cents. And the lemon zest and harissa is another favorite thing of mine. It's a, it's a Tunisian condiment. It's like ketchup meets a chili paste. It comes in a tube. It's like three or four dollars and you can put that on sandwiches. You can put that in eggs. You can use it all over the place. How do you spell that? Uh, Harissa, H-A-R-I-S-S-A. Okay, and we, we would find that in what area near in the ro grocery store, somewhere specific? Yeah, it would be in the condiment section. It comes in a, well, the one I buy is D-A-O, I believe. It comes in a bright yellow tube in a box. Here's the thing, though, about recipes. This is the difference between the average home cook and a professional chef, and that is a home cook will look at a recipe and if they don't have that one ingredient that you can only get in you know London by mail order and they're out of stock and it's going to be six months there's always something you can use that will get you close and if you keep that in mind and maybe you know google what it was google what it tastes like and then just use your common sense and think about what you could replace it with Chances are, unless it is the focal point of the recipe, it's not going to make that much difference. If it does make a difference, you'll create something else that will be equally as good, just slightly different. Having the confidence to do that is what comes from cooking more and more and believing in your own palate. There's another thing I love to encourage people to do, and that is 
to taste things. Even here's the simplest of simple examples. Olive oil. You know, olive oils can be very different. The best way to learn about olive oil is to get two or three of them, or maybe you have one or two at home already, and buy a couple bottles, and then just put a little bit of oil from each bottle in a spoon and taste them side by side. That's something I learned from tasting wines as a wine judge. When you taste the same thing, like 10 Sauvignon Blancs side by side, the differences will jump out at you because you have a reference point of the one you just tasted and the one you're going to taste after that. And the same is true with olive oils. And you'll some of the differences in flavor profiles are just stylistic. And some of them are, you know, some oils just really aren't that great or not that deeply flavored. But you'll quickly educate your own palate so that you don't have to rely on other people to know if something is good or not good. And you can do the same thing with all the fancy salts that are available these days, with balsamic vinegars, with vodka. That's how you teach yourself. Right. And some of those are worth investing. Not using some chintzy olive oil is really a big difference in the beginning of cooking a lot of things, right? Well, yes, yes and no. I mean, yes, for sure. And you will teach yourself which olive oils you like so that you trust your own palate. Most chefs at home have two bottles of olive oil. One is the oil that they use to saute with. They'll use if they're making something that has a million different ingredients in it. And that's the inexpensive one. You know, here in the States, we have, for example, Trader Joe's, where you can get a really decent bottle of olive oil for $8. And then their fancy oil that either someone gave them as a gift they've sort of held on to or they've treated themselves to is best used if you're just drizzling it on some tomatoes, on some potatoes, if you're making a really simple salad dressing like the one I described, like that bruschetta, if you're drizzling it on bruschetta. So where you're really going to taste the difference, as soon as you heat it up, all of a sudden the subtleties just disappear. Oh, uh, good. That's good to know because tonight we're making your pizza with the arugula and the... Uh prosciutto and that calls for a little olive oil at the end we'll use the good stuff there that calls for a lot of olive oil in the beginning because you you're referring to a, a book i wrote called pizza on the grill uh, which is about grilling pizzas so in the beginning you take a ball of dough you roll it out and you drench it in olive oil and then sprinkle it with coarse cornmeal and that allows it to not only not stick to the grill but when it's cooking on the grill, the oil is essentially like frying the bread. So you're getting like fried bread, which makes the crust so nice and crispy. But that oil is on the heat. And so you want to use your inexpensive oil for that. And then at the very end, I suggest that you drizzle it with some nice oil. And that's when you want to use your fancy stuff. Why well, I feel so much protected. It's like it's like a survival trip into the kitchen with you nearby. <laughs> Same true with salt, by the way. You know, if you ever buy any fancy salts, never use them to say salt your pasta water because you're just pissing money down the drain when you do that. Use the fancy salts to finish. They're referred to as finishing salts. Just a little bit on top of your steak. Don't salt your steak with it in the beginning. Use your regular kosher salt or basic sea salt for that. And then at the very end, if you've got, say, a Malden sea salt, which is the best value fancy salt out there, then that's when you'd sprinkle the good stuff on top. All right, so I should not be using my Himalayan pink salt in my bathtub when I'm <laughs> soaking my feet. <laughs> well, what, what's the most kick-ass meal that you've ever prepared? I know you've done a lot of things, but did you step back from one meal and went, I've reached the top of the mountain tonight with this one? 
<sighs> well, you know, recently I was in um, Prince George, British Columbia. I was inexplicably cast to play a character loosely based on myself in a food-centric rom-com. And uh, Prince George is in, uh, it's an hour north by plane from Vancouver in the northern central region of British Columbia. And they have a lot of ingredients that they forage for there. So you can get morel mushrooms, you can get fiddleheads, all sorts of, of other wild ingredients. It's fantastic. And foraging, by the way, is as with zero waste and with the zest I was talking about, which is a zero waste thing, nothing tastes better than free. So when you're foraging for things and you're finding them and eating them, it's fabulous. And I, I was actually quarantined for two weeks before I was allowed to interact with people. And so I was, fortuitously, I was quarantining in a cabin by a lake. And so I was fly fishing every day at five in the morning on the lake, caught a few lovely little trout. And I remember I was just cooking for myself, but I had um, some fiddleheads and some morel mushrooms and this trout. And I, I'd phoned in um, some other ingredients. So I, I, you know, I had everything else I needed to prepare this. And sometimes the simplest meals can be the most memorable. I mean, of course, I've, I've had lots of exceptional experiences, both cooking myself or eating other people's foods. This one sticks in my mind, A, because it was recent, and B, because there was nothing extra fancy, and most of it was, I mean, in fact, all of it, if you count the trout, was just... Found ingredients and, yeah, at the ready. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Now, you're also an ambassador for the Second Harvest Perishable Food Bank in Toronto, is that right? That's correct. It's actually, now it's national, and um, as well, I'm an ambassador for Love Food, Hate Waste, which is a national Canadian zero waste initiative. I love my roles there because it allows me to help people just like this podcast, be creative in ways that can rescue ingredients per what we were just saying. Nothing is more satisfying than free. And by rescuing things that you were going to normally throw out and turning them into other things, you're doing a good thing for the planet. And so many resources are squandered when you throw things out from trucking to farming to everything else. And so you're doing a lot of good things and at the same time putting yummy things in your stomach. So it's kind of a win-win-win. Yeah, and you say when you finish making one meal, you should be looking at that stuff that's being cut away and save whatever fats or whatever stems or whatever stalks. Like think of it as the next prep for a soup. Totally. Like I, can't, I, I haven't thrown away a rotisserie chicken carcass in 10 years because I take them, I... I put them in a plastic bag, squish them into as small a ball as I can, which ends up being about the size of a grapefruit. And I squirrel them away in my freezer until I have about five of them. And then I just take them out frozen, put them into a pasta pot along with whatever tired carrots and onions and celery bits I have in my fridge. And if I don't have celery bits, maybe I've got the tops of uh, some fennel, you know, or whatever you have. And if you don't have some of that, then Maybe you have something else, and if you don't have that, then just fill it with water and simmer it for five hours, strain it off. You've got a chicken stock that butcher shops are charging $10 a jar for. That's awesome. That's like calling roadkill street food, right? Roadkill is street food, I That's guess. That's what I'm saying, right? You just <laughs> yeah. you just hike the price up on it. We're going to make Nutria tacos or something. I was in New Orleans when the Nutria was taking over the bay, which was some kind of a muskratty thing, and they were challenging chefs to make recipes with it just to get it out of the water. And I don't know that it ever caught on, but I thought it was really funny. I, I, my suggestion was 
just make them sandbags and raise the levee. <laughs> they should have changed the name. You know, I mean, does the name Patagonian Toothfish ring a bell? Not to me, but tell me about it. Patagonian Toothfish was the original name for Chilean sea bass. Only they couldn't move right. it. So some some wise guy in the Patagonian Toothfish marketing department said, let's just change the name. They called it Chilean sea bass. And now if I go to my local grocery store, it's $35 a pound. Crazy. Yeah, that's it. In the marketing world, I've always been intrigued by selling perfume, right? This is a stink. This is just an odor that everything around it makes it the thing, right? The design of the bottle, the name of the fancy thing, you know, like obsession or whatever you want to call it. And then attach a celebrity to it. And this is what Shaquille O'Neal smells like. You want to smell like this or whatever. It's really <laughs> artful that they, they, they story tell us into that. And this is more of an piece of investing advice, but it came from farmers that I remember hearing. I think it was one of the greater pieces of advice was don't eat your seed corn. Have you ever heard that phrase? I have not. Well, for farmers, it meant hang on to next year's crop. Like if you hang on to your corn that you can plant, then that's going to be all of what you harvest next year. And in, in the world of investing, it's like, you know, don't spend all your money living today for this moment. But I think that in some ways, the second harvest has the same philosophy of hang on to this stuff and you can reach a little further. You can last a little longer. Your The planet can last a little longer. So, I mean, I guess I hear that somewhat in the same vein. I, I think of it even the comedy department. When I'm writing a monologue or a sitcom, I don't try to put it all in episode one. I dole it out over time. Right. Save a little bit for dessert. Where do you stand on the dessert stomach? Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. What is that? It's like kids, they're full, but they have room for dessert. I would think that you might be able to write a, a whole book on. Well, well, you know what I would do, of course? One of my signature presentations is a savory cupcake. So I will make a cupcake from lamb shank as the, the base. So I'll, I'll roast off a lamb shank, tear the meat off the bone, add some herbs, maybe some garlic and, and onions that I will saute first, a little salt and pepper, and then I'll mix it with some egg and breadcrumbs so that it holds together and I'll bake it off in a cupcake tin. And then for the icing, which uh, I'm going to throw some air quotes around, I'll make a batch of mashed potatoes and then grate a little bit of roasted beet into them. And so I'll get this fuchsia pink mashed potato, which I put into a baker's piping bag with a star tip. And I pipe that on top of the lamb. And from your eye to the plate, it looks like a cupcake. But in truth, it's your entree. So if I had kids who I was trying to trick into eating their main course before I would let them have dessert, I would maybe make a meatloaf cupcake and, and serve it to them so that they would think they were getting dessert first. Do you ever have a taster or a friend who feels like you've bait and switched them into having a gamey cupcake there? Or it sounds like a really good way to presented. Well, as I'm telling you the story, I do remember that I did a variation on that theme for a kid-themed episode of my very first show called Surreal Gourmet, and I made a meatloaf cake. So it was big enough. It was iced with mashed potato icing, and I had broccoli florets and cherry tomatoes on the top. It looked like a beautiful cake, and then I sliced into it and served it to these kids who were my guests on the show. And they all took one bite and started crying on camera. <laughs> <laughs> so I think I won the battle, but lost the war on that one. <laughs> Let me tell the listener that looking into Flavor Bomb, Off the Beaten Path, Glutton for Pleasure, all of your cookbooks have 
great stuff in it. The Flavor Bomb book, I really enjoyed reading all of the beginning parts about trust and preparation and all of that. It really is helpful before you start diving into recipes and it does give you a lot of confidence. I appreciate you spending the day today sharing some bit of, of your creative process. And I did learn something in the book. I learned that in addition to salt, sweet, acid, and heat, that umami, the Japanese, what does that exactly mean? That was the sort of the fifth flavor profile. Sure, that's more of a kind of malty flavor profile. So imagine miso, for example is a very umami-like uh, ingredient. So there's, it's just another taste profile to add. And it, I, I like to make a miso butter, which is just three parts room temperature butter and one part miso paste that you can get in pretty well any grocery store. And that becomes a very malty butter that you can put on anything from a steak to uh, your corn on the cob to a roasted sweet potato and it a it adds another dimension of flavor but b it adds that umami like fifth flavor do you have a bob bloomer website or address that i can send folks to i do my website is bob bloomer b-o-b-b-l-u-m-e-r.com and my instagram account and i'm always you know i live in los angeles and like all my neighbors have like millions of instagram followers which makes me terribly jealous so i'm always trying to catch up with them so if your listeners if your audience could do a guy a favor it would be to just go to bob bloomer on instagram and follow me so that i can catch up with my neighbors i also thought and i'll just throw this in at the end that a good book for you might be food fight all the things we fight with like how to cut a mango and those kinds of things Oh, the things we fight? Oh, I like that. No, not for throwing. Food fights and zero waste do not go together. Right. I'm saying the foods that you fight with, because I do know that when I l finally learned a couple of different ways to cut a mango, finding ways that it was really interesting and used most of the materials was like a giant aha moment in the kitchen for me. That's genius. I like that. How to win a food fight. You run with that and you have my endorsement. <laughs> Email me your address so I know where to send the checks. This one's a freebie for being my guest today. <laughs> you may live to regret that when you walk into a bookstore in two years from now. I'll encourage folks to follow you. Uh, very kind of you. It's been a pleasure chatting, and uh, I hope we can do it again. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe, and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the leadership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing by the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Marcus Siniskalki, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You're hearing that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghost